Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to The Three Questions. I'm your host, Andy Richter. And today I am talking to Jason Isbell. Uh, Jason is an incredible musician and now a movie star. And he is, uh, if I may say, my first return guest to The Three Questions. This podcast, I always felt like it was a one-shot deal, but they said, Jason wants to come back on. I said, well, I can't say no to that. This past year, Jason was profiled in his own HBO documentary film, Jason Isbell, Running With Our Eyes Closed. He released a new album called Weather Veins, and he released the 10-year anniversary edition of his solo album, Southeastern. He also made his big-screen acting debut in the new Martin Scorsese film, Killers of the Flower Moon. Jason joined me via Zoom, and here is my second conversation with the great, great Jason Isbell. Well, here I am again with Jason Isbell. And Jason, this is a auspicious occasion for this podcast because this podcast is not really designed for repeats. You know, hmm. the whole notion of tell me about your story, uh, tell me about where you're going, and now what have you learned about your story? Yeah, like it, you know, it's like you don't come back on to go like, oh, I, I have a different childhood to tell you about, <laughs> you yeah. know? Yeah. yeah know. You've done a lot of therapy in between right, exactly. episodes. Yeah. Yeah. You unlocked yeah. a lot of repressed memories or something. Yeah. I just, Which, I just have remembered. You? Have you? Cause that would be great if you did. I don't think so. No, oh, I think I pretty shit. much had it all last Damn. time. Yeah. Then, you know, they, they, somebody said to you, you know, that you wanted to come back on or they was pitched to you. I don't know if it was, but I said, sure. Yeah. yeah I, I, would, I like it. That's I would good. love to talk to Jason again. So this is the first time I've done that. And there have been a couple of occasions where people wanted to come back on. And I said, no, no, no. there's nothing. There's no more blood to be gotten from that turnip. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah. uh, I just, and I mean, you know what I mean? We're, I, I, I just wanted to talk to you and I figured we'd f- find something to fill out an hour. Yeah. Um, and also too, to prep for this, because I do occasionally prep. For these things, I listened to our old one, which was interestingly enough, like right after all the January 6th inauguration shit. And we talked about that. And so it was just mm-hmm. kind of interesting to hear us sort of laughing about that. Like, what a clusterfuck. What a bunch of bumbleheaded idiots. And it's like, oh, no, 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 no. That's still very much with us. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's know. still here. They're still yeah. bumbleheaded idiots. Yeah. But they have yeah, yeah. a significant act yeah. yes and it, and and they're far more sinister than we even kind of imagined you know because mm-hmm. we found out the the real the sort of breadth of of the just villainy just the just the villainy 
of all mm-hmm. these nice white folks. You know, that's the other thing, yeah. too. It's like they're the you know, these are the nice white folks. These are the real Americans. And oh, yeah, yeah. they they were shitting on the floor. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know? Nice. It's, nice. You know, I've never seen anybody behave worse than a group of the nice white folks yeah it's you know you go overseas and you see them in england and as soon as the sun goes down they go from the most dignified people in the world (laughs) to pissing on each other's feet in the streets yes Um, yes yeah and you know it was that it was that way when i was a kid too it's like uh yeah the, the the redneck fights are are more just miserable to see than any kind of you know, and then anything, anything else. There's no group of people that can make a bigger idiot out of themselves than yeah. nice, polite white people with their shirt tucked in. I, and I, I even like, I think it was before I got off Twitter. I even noticed it was after they chose uh, Mike Johnson. Is that his name? The, mm-hmm. the speaker. And he gave a press conference, and they're all sitting there so smug. And there was that one older woman that when they said, "Well, what about?" You know, the fact that you voted to you you didn't vote to certify the election. You voted against the certification of the legal upfront election. Mm -hmm. And this woman just went, shut up. Yeah. Like the dignity, you know, the 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 decorum, uh, which they love to shove down other people's throats. But like and I just was struck by these fuckers. These are the worst of the whites. Just Mm -hmm. that they're every fucking shitty woman at brunch talking crappy to a waiter there's there they're everybody you know who just thinks they're right when they just are wrong 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 over and over and over every gas bag sitting at the bar that makes you go let's go home you know yeah yeah uh and i and i just i just wonder like if you have theories as to like why there is something so toxic about their anger and their fights you know, the best I can come up with is the idea that that they have been taught to base their self-worth on something other than their actions. Yeah. I think that's a big part of the problem is is, you know, when you're when you're not judging, am I doing a good job as a human or not by your actions? You're judging it by who was my father, how yeah. long have I lived here? Yeah. You know, which land is mine? What is my last name? What school do my children go to? Yeah. All these things that aren't, you know, the one real thing that matters. Yeah. Then you get so defensive about that ego and that pride that you start to excuse your own behavior and you lose control of your patience because the way to build good decision making is to judge yourself on your actions only. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. And so if you never do that, if you grow up thinking I am worth my last name or I am worth the color of my skin or I'm worth the house that I live in, yeah. you never practice being patient. You never practice being dignified. You you only practice valuing yourself based on something you have no control over. Yeah, yeah. You know, and eventually that erodes. You get to the point where you think, well, I'm a you know, Smith, I can say whatever I want to say. Right, or right. I'm, I'm a white or my, person. I can yeah, say whatever family, I want to say. My family's been in control of this town or this acre or this house or whatever for so many generations, mm-hmm. you know, and it's a, it, 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 you know, it's my birthright. I, uh, to me, the thing that always strikes me about it is, and it, it struck me about Donald Trump and, and I think why he resonates with so many people is that like, there's this kind of 
white daddy, John Wayne kind of, uh, I don't, I don't follow the rules. I make the rules. Yeah. And if I decide to break the rules, it's because I make the rules and I don't, I, you know, reality is just what I say it is. You know, like I'm a good upstanding citizen. Well, are you really? You cheat on mm -hmm. your taxes. You cheat on your wife. No, no, I'm a good upstanding citizen. And I, you know, because I, look at me, look at me. I got all the trimmings of, of being a good upstanding citizen when it's like, no, you don't. And, and also the world you've created with your amazing competence, it's not working. You know, no, it's like, it's no. not so great. It's not being run so well. It's not so perfect. It's not, you know, the, 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 the things that you're doing are not taking care of everybody. Mm -hmm. you yeah. Know? But I think the people he's getting with the con aren't necessarily the people who vote. I think what, what's putting him in the position of power are these leashes. You know, I think there are leash issues and a lot of this, I feel like sort of started with Reagan. I know it happened before, but it really ramped up when the uh, conservative political right figured out what they what they could use as a leash for the religious yeah. right. And they said, OK, if you're the only guy that is for, um, you know, pro-life, uh, you know, the term the ridiculous time and we're all pretty pro-life or we'd be jumping off a fucking building right now. But <laughs> <laughs> which some days doesn't see, you know, yeah, I'm not always yeah, pro-life, yeah. Andy. Some days <laughs> I'm against all of it, the whole yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, but if you're not pro-choice and the other candidates are, there's your leash. Yeah. You can do or say anything because these people think if they don't vote for you, they're going to hell. They're yeah. going to get a pitchfork shoved up their ass for eternity you know, with not so much as a coffee break. And, uh, and that's really the long, that's, that, that's the horrible con to me, because after that, they have to keep doubling down until they actually convince themselves that they like it. Yeah. Cause you cannot vote to kill a baby. If you think you're killing a baby and you're going to hell, you can't hit that button, man. Yeah, it doesn't matter yeah, yeah. what else. He could come shit in your children's mouths and you would have to vote for him because yeah. the other option is going to hell forever. Yeah. For, if we yeah, can't get those leashes, baby killer. Yeah. Yeah. If we can't get those leashes off of people's necks, man, then, then, then we're just going to continue to get fucked by people who realize that they can keep pushing every other boundary, you know? Yeah. 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 Cause that's the thing, you know, it is, you know, for evangelicals to be for Donald Trump and, you know, I mean, and you hear it, you see it, you see people. Cause I think I can see the evangelical rationale that you're talking about, which is mm -hmm. look, I know Donald Trump is certainly not, he does not have a sparkling, you know, clean reputation or he has not, he does not live the life of an evangelical saint, but he's going to follow all the, th he's going to do all the things I want him to do. He's going to yeah. save those babies' lives. Like I can understand that. Calculation. But you're coming, you're coming at that with a non-evangelical rationale. I guess. Yeah, I guess I am. Yeah. They have been taught not to say what you just said, Andy. Yeah. They've been taught. You don't eat off the tree of knowledge. There's a reason it was the tree of knowledge. They've been taught, don't question those things. If, if yeah. you have to go one way, then you go all the way that one way. Or else they do that with the Bible. If yeah. they would do that with Trump, they would look at the Bible and go, wait a minute. I, I, this doesn't make much sense to me, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so you can't start. That'll crumble. You start yeah. questioning, you yeah. know. 
you, you, you have to just go full on. You can't hedge well, any that, of your bets. That's what I was starting. What I was uh, starting to say is that you do see like people online saying, you know, Donald Donald Trump is a, he is like the most evangelical president we've ever had. He is yeah. the, most, the most Christian. Like they again, they start making shit up. They yep. start deciding what the reality is when, you know, anybody like that's it's all. And it, and it's I think why it can feel so hopeless is because and we talked about it a little bit on the on the past podcast. Look at Donald Trump. That's that's your like that's your, your boy, your, your yeah. paragon of competence, of intelligence, of honesty, of, you, you know, purity. Like, don't look at him. Look at him. I'm looking at him and I see what I see. And it's like, oh, shit. How do you fight that? You know, I mean, yeah. how do you how do you fight people that that will force anything that crosses their radar into the box and fantasy of what they want it to be? Yeah. I mean, you got to go back in time. You know, yeah. you got to go back in time and make that bottom number the same. The common denominator is not the same yeah. anymore. And it never was for everybody, but you know, you got to educate folks. Yeah. And once they're 30, 40, 50 years old, it's too late. Yeah. You know, you got to teach them how to like stop doubling down and admit, oh, I was wrong about this guy. Look at this guy. He's a fucking buffoon. Yeah. You know, or else they just keep on double. You know, it's like people gambling, man. You see the stupidest possible decisions if you show up two hours into their blackjack game and they're losing you they're, they're doing things and you're going man you're splitting tens here there's absolutely no way you're getting your money back but they're so far yeah, into yeah. it yeah. you just showed up at the end you know we're yeah. showing up at the end of these people's lives and saying why didn't you learn how to look at this guy and know what he really is yeah that's because they they, they have been trained to accept this for their whole life. And everybody around them has kept doubling down on this. You know, yeah. if you're, you're going to, you're, you're going to take pride in this, you're going to take pride in America and in our exceptionalism. And yeah. you're going to take pride in the fact that we run the world and we make the rules and we're in control and we come first, you know, um, and you can't show up that late and say, all of a sudden, you know, why are you not saying, seeing the same reality that I'm seeing? Yeah. We we touched on a little bit last time, and you and and one of the things that you said about you know that your first marriage and that and that one of the re, you know you you kind of said I wasn't supposed to be married, but I had so much religious programming in my head. And you were raised in a Pentecostal church in the Church of Christ, which is pretty hardcore, yeah, fundament, fundamentalist. And I wonder if you'll talk a little bit about like what that programming was like. And when it started to come undone and, and, and where you are now in terms of questions of faith. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I've talked to my dad a lot about this recently because he was raised like full on in the Pentecostal church. So he dressed differently than the other kids. You know, they didn't take like over the counter medication. Um, you know, he, he looked very different. And when he went to school, he looked very different. And just recently, um, you know, I've sort of, cause dad's always had 
labor intensive jobs nobody's ever really hired him for his uh, mental acuity and, yeah and it's mostly house house painting right was he d- house he did painting lo- and he did yeah. maintenance at a hospital for a long okay. time and uh uh and then he went back to house painting because uh, he was working more than he wanted to he couldn't make it to all my ball games and school functions and stuff mm. so he took a pay cut and went back to working with his dad painting houses and uh um and then eventually i hired him a a few years ago because he he you know he wasn't making a whole lot of money and i was like man i'll pay you more than that to just come maintain our property so that that's what he does now um yeah but we've talked a lot about the fact that you know when he was a kid if there was a book report that you had to get up in front of the class and present uh he would just take a zero even though he'd read the book completely understood it you know, had no problem turning in a written report, he couldn't get up in front of the other kids because he felt this sort of shame at being different. And he was different because of the obvious religious indoctrination, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think for his parents, uh, it it may have been more of a necessary tool, you know, because they came through the depression with a whole bunch of siblings. And I think they wound up with, with hammers and they needed you know, screwdrivers. Uh, mm. uh, and and so, you know, they taught their kids the thing that had worked for them. And then my dad and my mom kind of, you know, looked at the situation, even though they were teenagers and said, uh, we're not going to keep doing this. You know, I don't want him to feel different. Is this after, after your birth? Yeah. Of? This is when I was yeah. a kid. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and dad and I talked about this about a week ago, actually, we went down, we went to the SEC championship game in Atlanta and talked about it on the way. But, um, uh, you know, he said that he made a conscious effort to not raise me as fundamentally, you know, Pentecostal Christian as, as he had been raised because it was a source of, uh, uh, shame for him to, to feel different in that way from everybody else. Um, so when it was time for me to get up in front of people, I didn't mind. And it was kind of like baffling to my parents. I think the first time I ever did it was at like, Opryland, uh, the old theme park, country music theme park mm-hmm. here in Nashville, and they wanted to volunteer, and I just ran up the stage and got on stage, and they're like, "What the hell is this? Who is this kid?" You know, <laughs> like, and uh, and I loved it, and I've always loved it since then. But that to me was a very significant, you know, decision that they made because it led to everything that's happened in my life ever since yeah. then. Was there a crisis of conscience in that case? Like, did they think they're going to go to hell? Because they're, you know, they're probably a little bit. Yeah, probably a little bit. I, I I don't think they think that now. I think over the, you know, they were kids, man. They were sure 19 and 17. 17 and, yeah. Yeah. So, so I think at the time, yeah, they probably felt pretty guilty about that. Um, uh, but they cared more about me than they cared about themselves, you know? And, uh, and over time, I think they realized that, oh yeah, we're not raising a, 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 demonically possessed sinful child he's making a joyful noise in one way or another you know Um, yeah uh, as far as like my particular religious beliefs now um you know I, i i don't really think it matters all that much it's kind of the thing where you know if there's a god or if there's not a god i still have to get up and put on my pants you know, mm-hmm. still have to take a shower and have some coffee and go to the gym and, 
you know, work on a song or go do my Christmas shopping or whatever. Um, uh, so yeah, I don't, I don't really confirm or deny, but it's not something that I, uh, use to make my day-to-day judgments mm-hmm. at all, you know, cause I just, I just don't understand how, you know, you could do your best your whole life and try to be fair with people and try to be honest with people because you think it's the way you should be and not because of some reward in the afterlife. Yeah. Yeah. And then you get to the quo. Yeah. Yeah. And then you get to the gates of heaven and St. Peter or whoever's like, yeah, I mean, you did everything on paper, but you didn't believe that we were here. So you have to go to hell. Like, I don't, I, I can't buy that. I think, I think, you know, you should do it because it is the right thing to do, not because you're going to get a whole bunch of stuff in the next life. Right. Um, but I have I have a lot to be grateful for in this life. So I can understand how somebody who is just suffering through their whole existence, you know, would turn to religion. Like, like some of the AME, church, you know, the Southern Baptist black churches. I had a lot of friends that went to church there, and I went to, to those churches some myself as a guest and was very moved. Because I think a lot of people, you know, they 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 need that hammer because it it keeps them alive and it keeps them hopeful. And yeah. for some folks, there's not much to look forward to in this life. You know, uh, I got lucky that way. Yeah, yeah. Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg, and cheese McGriddles? And a breakfast cutoff. Ba da ba ba ba. Save big money on everything for your spring projects at Menards. We have all of your garden and landscaping essentials. Master Garden Premium Garden Soil contains a slow-release fertilizer that feeds gardens for up to nine months. It produces better results and is ready to use for all your gardening needs. Save big on Menards' great selection of garden and landscaping products. Compare brands in-store or online at Menards.com. Save big money at Hi, I'm John Lovett, host of Love It or Leave It. Every week, I'm joined live on stage by incredible guests to break down the biggest and dumbest stories in politics and pop culture. And now, because there's too much news for just one show, join me and my friends, also known as beloved producers who have to be there, every Tuesday for a rundown of the latest headlines to help get you through another flawless week in our perfect society. Listen to episodes of Love It or Leave It wherever you get your podcasts, or catch the funniest moments on the Love It or Leave It YouTube channel. Can't you tell my love's a grow? Is there still, because there is, you know, you talked about kind of the transactional nature of a lot of like the basic notion of religion and especially Christianity. Are there vestiges of that in you? Like, do you still have a little bit of you that worries like, I'm going to get, like St. Peter's going to go, sorry, Jason, you didn't, we told you, you know, you got to say the words, you got to, you know, do the thing. And then you see, you know, I don't know. You see Donald Trump saunter in right past you. Just like, walking past Yeah, me. yeah. Like, ah, right this fuck. way, sir. Yeah. I was wrong. Yeah. Um, no, I, you know, I, I think I've gotten all that out. But there is, uh, to speak to that on, on a different level, there, there are motivations within me that could have only come from that kind of fear yeah. as a child. You know, yeah, there's, yeah. A de- there's a determination and there's also... Um, the idea of, you know, the firm idea of what's right and what's wrong that I think 
built from there, you know, and yeah. you start with, start with all that hardcore Christianity, do a bunch of fucking therapy and you wind up here, you know, um, because I kept the parts of it that served me well. And that was this sort of like concrete idea of right and wrong. And so I'm decisive. And, um, if I, if I make a choice, I usually accept that it's the right choice. You know, yeah. it's the ones that I don't make that get me in trouble. When you yeah, look yeah. around and go, how did I get here? How did right. my life wind up like this? You know? Right. Um, and I think I do owe a lot of that in my nature to being raised in that way. I think I've kept that, you know? Um, yeah. And also, man, I have a vast, just, I don't even know if it's appreciation is the right word, but uh, it is really kind of a miracle or about as close to a miracle as you could get, you know, that a bunch of people come up with all these different religions that became so incredibly popular and worked so well for so many things. I mean, you know, if what you're looking to do is get people to follow you, holy shit, what a yeah. maneuver, what a yeah, book, yeah. what a collection, like what the fuck? It's like they were all Taylor Swift and Beyonce. Every single one of them. They were that good at making yeah. something that people wanted to consume and become yeah. obsessed with. And I mean, that's if you want to hold yourself to a standard as a as a creative person, those those fuckers knocked it out of the park, man. Because yeah, we're yeah, still yeah. sitting here talking about that shit yep. right now. Yep. It's amazing. Yeah. I think, you know, I, I'm sure that at some point, science is going to understand what it is about the human brain and the way the human brain works that makes you come up with the notion of God. Mm -hmm. Like what what exactly what that process is, because it, every human on the planet has done it. Like there's no sort of like agnostic island you know, yeah. sort of like yeah. island of people that are just like, well, uh, we don't think about it much. You know, we just sort yeah. of like we get fish from the ocean and, and, and coconuts and, you know, and we live our lives and. Like everybody has, I mean, there's obviously this need, this very primary, primal need to explain things and to feel like uh, you're more than just uh, prey. You know, you're more right. than just an animal waiting to get eaten. And so, and we have big brains that like stories. We make yeah. them up, you know. Um, but yeah, you're right. There, There is something, you know, I've never felt a real I was I was involved in uh in the Protestant church we went to a bunch of we went to whatever Protestant church was closest yeah uh, but I ended up as I got into my teen years being very involved uh with the congregational church in our town which is a very very it was part of the um part of the United Church of Christ which also yeah. has a lot of like Unitarian Universalist churches which are the yeah. most sort of like whatever you believe is cool with us kind loosey goosey yeah, yeah yeah and ours was pretty loosey goosey i mean there were people within our church that weren't so loosey goosey but generally speaking we had a minister and it was all connected to this minister we had larry Rezash, who was just a very inspirational wonderful amazing man and and when he was gone i was gone kind of yeah um but i never felt any kind of like religious conviction, you know, yeah. like I, I, but, but I do find myself feeling like, well, I got to know all these Jesus stories. Like I got to know all these Jesus stories so I can understand 
the culture of the Western world that I live yeah. in, you know? Yeah, just the canon of literature yeah, and, and music. And, you know, it's it's a reference everywhere. I couldn't possibly keep it out of my songs if I tried. Yeah, yeah. You know, I but I think at the risk of, of sounding uh, like the biggest blowhard that's ever lived, um, I think it's grief. I think God is grief. Mm. You know, I, I I think that we needed a way because survival caused us to stick together and, you know, evolving into a species that would survive and, and multiply, made us love each other. And then when somebody died, we had to figure something out. Yeah. We couldn't just sit there and think they're gone. Yeah. It just hurt too much. And we wouldn't get up and we wouldn't go survive more and multiply more. Or and see them again. Yeah, yeah. Or, oh, right. yeah, 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 or yeah, even yeah. imagine that they're going back to nature, that they're going into the stars, or that they're yeah. blasting off to another universe. We had to have something because yeah. they can't just be gone. Yeah. You know? And to me, the idea that they're just gone, you know, not that I 100% believe this, but it's comforting. Mm-hmm. To me, you know, I think, well, that's that they're done. Yeah. And when I'm gone, I'll be done too. So yeah. I don't care what you say about me or what happens to my money or my guitars or my legacy or anything. I will be here. It sounds kind of awesome. You know, yeah. it, it's, I'm, I'm right. <laughs> I'm right there with you. Anytime anybody has ever talked to me about like estate issues, I'm like, I don't give a shit. And like, I, yeah. you know, I'm, I, you know, and I and it's the same thing. I, I have it written down that like I want to be uh, cremated and dumped into moving water uh, because <laughs> yeah. because I just feel it's a waste of real estate to put me in a gra- in the ground and then not be able to use that land for something else. I would but, clarify the moving water part. Baby, <laughs> yeah, right. there's I don't a want lot it to of, be a pond. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of moving water out there. <laughs> uh, uh, listen, honestly, flush down the <laughs> toilet. I don't give a shit. It, and that's yeah. And that's what I've said. Like I think I had a conversation with my son about it, where I was like. You know, but you can do whatever you want with me. You can stuff mm-hmm. me and keep me in the corner. I don't care. I, I don't give a shit. It won't matter to me, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that changes when you think about, for me at least, it changes when I think about, you know, my mom or my daughter. Or, yeah. You know, uh, that that it's like for me, yeah, sure, I'll be gone. But it's hard for me to imagine that whatever that is, that's not their body, that's not their physical body, whatever it is that makes my daughter her will one day just not be anywhere. Yeah. That, I need a God for that. Yeah. You know, I start feeling like, okay, well, somebody's got to be right. Let's pick the best one, you know? Um, And it's really hard to hold that line when it comes to somebody you care about that much, you know? And I know it's just the old part of my cave brain telling me that that that's my job is to feel Mm -hmm. that way about other people you know um uh so it gets complicated i think i think love you know i mean really when when they say god is love that's it comes right down to that you know you you love people so you can all survive and then you need to build a god out of that love so you have something to tell yourself for when they're gone yeah are you susceptible to that uh, whole well don't you want your child to know a little bit you know to have some sort of religious structure in their life because that was something i always got and and my ex-wife you know she was from a very her very catholic family and i Mm -hmm. think there was some of that about you know she she one time her her mother came to visit us when my son was tiny and 
and was taking him out. She's like taking him out for a, a suspiciously long walks. And she said, I'm afraid he's get, she, that she's getting him baptized. And I was like, oh, she can, <laughs> she can baptize him 13 times a day. I don't care. Yeah. You know, yeah. whatever. Yeah. But but there was that pressure of like or that what that notion of, well, aren't you going to take him and give him at least a little taste of it? And I just always felt like, well, no. Maybe you know? to understand other people, you know, yeah. maybe from a sociological yeah. viewpoint, you know, like I'll, I'll, uh, I'll probably, um, give her Reza Aslan's books at some point, you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. I'd like you to know about Jesus, honey, like yeah. historically, historically, right. the right, man, right, Jesus. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, but also if she gets that, if she finds it on her own, maybe it gets her through a little period of time when she would have been in, in danger otherwise, you know? Yeah. Um, and and if somebody else in her life shows her that, you know, you just have to watch. You just have to know your kids. So it's like, you know, well, you uh, you know, keep them from joining a cult and keep them from feeling so guilty all the damn time because it's yeah. already we're already feeling guilty just for taking up space, you know. Um, yeah. Uh, but I think you know it, it's good. It's good to know what all these people are talking about and 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 why they're all going to the same building every Sunday and most yeah. Wednesday nights and stuff. But, 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 you, you know, I think, I think the, the only thing that really counts is this sort of firm foundation of your identity. You know, when you're, when you're really little, like one to five, if, if people are telling you, Hey, you're, you're, you're valuable, uh, then you're going to be fine. And if they're not, then you're fucked and that's yeah. it. Yeah. You know, well, one thing that's changed since the last time you were here is uh, you weren't a big uh, movie star back then. I but wasn't, now, not yet. You're now a big movie star, you know? you're. In, oh. How do you feel about that? I mean, I feel great. I imagine it's got to be pretty damn fun. It's amazing. Um, yeah. Uh, because of the, you know, the Scorsese movie, uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, um, it, it was this was a wild thing to be involved in because I didn't, so we were in the middle of the of the lockdown and we couldn't tour. And I just told my agent at William Morris, I would like to try to be in a show or a, or a movie if somebody's doing something good. Maybe I can get a small part. And so he went down the hall to Alex, uh, I've movie said agent. To them, I've said that so much to them. And it just, yeah. I've never been in a Scorsese movie. I don't know what you got that I don't. <laughs> it's the accent, Andy. <laughs> is that what it is? It's the accent. I realized it when I got on set. <laughs> they had this guy who was the dialect coach, and this man was a genius. You yeah. know, this man is like in his 70s, you know, Gucci tracksuit, walking cane, you know, bopping around the set, uh, going over. Most of his time was spent telling De Niro uh, how to pronounce the letter I in the way a Southerner would pronounce the letter I. That was the biggest part of his job. (laughs) But the first day I got there, they cut my hair, they picked out my costumes, and they sent me to this dialect coach. And this man had been the dialect coach on the film Gangs of New York. Wow. Now, the two people that I know in my life who've had the hardest jobs in my mind were this guy being the dialect coach of gangs in New York, and my buddy Gabe, who used to be Kanye West's publicist. Those are the two (laughs) people that I know (laughs) that have had the most difficult jobs. But we sat down, and he said, you just talk like you talk. I don't have any notes for you. And I was like, now I know why I got this role. (laughs) Um, So Alex at at WME um, got me an audition. And uh, Ellen, who's been casting movies for Marty for a long, long time, 
uh, uh, knew my music and gave me a shot. And initially it was going to be a smaller role, like a cameo type role. And I just did a bunch of work. I went back and read the source material and I studied all the characters and, and what had happened to them, found all the information I could find. And I went and watched David, the, uh, who wrote Killers of the Flower Moon. I watched all of his Library of Congress readings and Q&As and got all the information on the story that I could possibly get and told Ellen, you know, if there's a bigger part, uh, I, I would like to try uh, to get that. And because I was excited at this point, the story yeah, yeah. is, you know, such an incredible uh, thing to help tell uh because it's something we should have already known you know yeah um and you're and and you're also still that same kid that ran up to the stage at Opryland. yeah you're damn right yeah yeah yeah. i was like i'm the guy i'm the guy even when i'm not i'm like i'm the guy you know yeah um and like i like i told my wife amanda i said it's, it's like playing bass for the beatles um, because I, I'm not a bass player, but I can yeah. play the bass and yeah. they, ha- they already have Paul. I have no idea why they've asked me to do it, but yeah. I'm not going to say no. <laughs> you know? So here I am yeah. playing bass for the Beatles. Um, and I might, I might even ask for a solo. Uh, yeah. Oh know. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah just after a, quick a few one. days. Yeah. yeah I'll, sla- I'll slap something out there. <laughs> um, it, it took a while for me to get comfortable. Um, we had the, the what really did it was, uh, the night there was there's one scene with me and DiCaprio where we're kind of in each other's faces and we're in the living room at, at my character's house, Bill Smith's house. And uh, we'd been going back and forth for hours, um, you know, riffing, uh, just basically saying, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kick your ass and going back and forth in every variation of that. And you could hear Marty laughing from the other room, watching his screens, you know. And it was in a tiny room. It was in the actual house in uh, in Bartlesville, Oklahoma, um, or Fairfax, Oklahoma. Uh, and and so the house was 120 years old, and it was small. And we were, you know, the camera crew. There's 30 crew people all yeah. crowded and jammed tight, in, you know, yeah. jammed in, like holding cameras and boom mics and stuff. And and Leo and I are like nose to nose, and somebody on the crew farted. And it was one of those where, you know, you could tell by the sound of it that they had lost this great battle. Like they had, <laughs> you know, had done everything he could yeah, do yeah, to keep yeah. it in. And it's you could just that, hear it. It's a fart that inspires sympathy. It does. It does. It's like, oh, <laughs> oh, oh man. God. But yeah. Nobody. So I start laughing. Because yeah. it's funny when someone farts. Of course. And, Le- and Leonardo DiCaprio starts laughing because it's funny when somebody farts. But nobody on the crew, later on I was calling it farticus because nobody <laughs> made a sound or turned their head. I was like, I am farticus. <laughs> I am farticus. The most professional people in the world, you know. Yeah. So the only sound is the the fart. Uh, of great loss and then me and Leonardo DiCaprio laughing (laughs) and in my head I thought oh that's a blooper reel now we're laughing at something we're no longer in the scene and Leo put the laugh right into character and continued with the scene and all of a sudden he was laughing at Bill and not laughing with me yeah and and I thought oh shit that's why you know, one of us has a best actor Oscar and the other one is me because I just got out gone. <laughs> but that was the night when everything really uh, got comfortable for me. Yeah. Um, 
you know, because I felt like I did a good job and I felt like I belonged there after that. And it was fine. But up until yeah. that point, man, I was fucking scared. I was just like, Are you I just, don't know what to do. How do I do this? Yeah, that's what I was going to say, because I, you know, I, I mean, I'm not a deeply trained actor. I'm a practiced actor. Mm-hmm. And and I still, you know, if I don't if I don't do anything for a while and I come back, I, I feel like I don't really know how to do this. And and the only thing I come uh, come back with is, well, you know how to lie. You know, you know how to, like, say something that isn't true and try and give it all the window dressing of something that is true. You know, mm-hmm. like whether it's a prank or whether it's a joke or whether you're, you know, trying to get out of something. And so it, for me, you know, acting to me is like a lot <laughs> of it is just like, like, I'm not this guy and I don't really feel like. You know, like the, the, you know, if it's a restaurant scene, you know, like, you know, the chicken's overcooked. It's like, I don't, that's how I'm going to, but I'm going to say this like a person as if I was experiencing overcooked chicken. And Mm -hmm. is that sort of, I mean, is that what you were going with? I mean, what did, were you just like, you just scared and just doing whatever? I was very scared. Like at first I was just scared and doing what everybody told me. But when I finally got a sort of a foothold, it was when I realized that turning off all self-awareness was the trick for me. Yeah. Just just doing things and not being anything. Yeah. Because like, you know, I, I probably uh, you probably have this like this constant like tally rolling in your brain of like, you know, what is my spatial relationship to my soul? Like, what mm-hmm. am I doing? What am I thinking? Who, who mm-hmm. am I being? And turning all that off and just, you know, you pick up the pistol and you open the door and you step out onto the porch, you know, and eventually I sort of became the character when I could do that. Now, I'm not good at it. I haven't practiced it a lot, but, you know, I asked Lyle Lovett before I went um, what to do because he'd been in all those all those great uh, uh, Altman movies. You know, he was in quite a few and he was always fantastic. Um, And I, I asked him and he said, well, he said, Bob Altman told me. Right before I went out to, right before they said action on the first scene that I was in, he said, Bob came up and whispered in my ear, don't act. And that was it. That was the only advice he gave him. And uh, so Lyle said, so that's what I'll tell you. Don't act, you know. And and it was like, just completely eliminate. I am not acting right now. Yeah. I'm not acting. I'm driving a car. I'm riding a horse. I'm talking to my wife. I'm, you know, whatever you're doing, you're just doing that. Um, Yeah. So really, it was kind of an exercise in in process and awareness for me, yeah. You know, and I watched like watching Lily Gladstone. You know, when she when when she was supposed to be upset on cue, there was no acting. It was just like every terrible thing that had ever happened in her life was yeah. right here next to her face. Yeah, and yeah. she just opened that door and yeah. boom. You know, and I asked her about that. I was like, no wonder you people are all insane because you just have yeah. to keep this catalog of misery yes right there at all times i was so impressed so impressed by that it also really i think those that kind of performing is is somebody that that's that's that good it's there's something a little scary to it too and it's like it's like you said it's like looking at a crazy person because and because uh, for me it really because like you said she's not acting upset she is upset yeah. So it's real, but it's not real. And the yeah. line between what's blur, what's real and what isn't 
it gets really muddy and murky and it's and I, and it can't be good for you for your personal life be. not it can't at all be good for your personal life and i think i think that uh the way marty makes a movie i think he he orchestrates that also yeah know? because like sturgill and i've been friends for a long time right that's we what i was gonna say there were a lot of musicians in this movie sturgill yeah, simpson was in it and Pete Yorn and Terry uh, Pete Allen, Yorn, right, and right, yeah. Jack White, and but but Sturgill and I didn't see each other until our last day. Yeah. Every time when I'm going home, he's headed to set. When he's headed to set, I'm going home. Yeah. And after that happened about four or five times, we were like, I think uh, somebody is planning make, this. Yeah, I think the yeah. governor's making this happen, you know. And uh, I, I I think it was that way in a lot of cases because like the. The the women who all played the Osage sisters, you know, they spent a lot of time together, and and you know, some of it voluntarily, some of it just seemed like it just happened. Oh, look yeah. who I'm in a room with again. It's like, no, yeah, that yeah. motherfucker over there is is godding us around. Yeah, um, yeah, to great to great effect. You know, Sturgill yep. and I weren't friends in the movie. Uh, you know, um, so we weren't friends on the set. I mean, yeah, it's just, and, and I understand how that probably. You talk about a, a a a couple, you know, forming on a movie set. That makes sense to me oh, because the the good directors they put you together with people that are you're going to have chemistry that you can't create, you know, yeah. and and it's just going to be obvious on stage yeah. and yeah. Uh, or or on 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 a screen. And so yeah, those things start to get in your head, man. It 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 makes sense. Yeah. Does it make you want to do more? This this story, the way it was told, the way it all turned out, uh, I would like to do that again. Uh-huh. As far as just acting, that's a lot of work, man. That's those days are long. Yeah, um, there's a lot of sit, a lot of sitting around too. Uh-huh. I mean, I know there's there's like musicians sitting around, but acting sitting around, I think is yeah, it's a, it's another level of hurry yeah. up and wait. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, I think I will probably do it again. Um, but I just I really love my day job. I yeah. still, I, I love it more and more and more the older I get and, and the more songs we get to choose from to play live and, and the tighter the band gets and the more we get used to each other. And I just really love my day job. Yeah. Did you find that, that, that the kind of efficacy of forgetting yourself and just existing in the moment, did that, is that something, do you feel that in music too? Cause that seems to me like. And because I completely relate to what you're saying, don't act mm-hmm. just just if you're going to be crossing a room, don't be like, I'm crossing the room, just cross the room. Yeah. And 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 that is like if you can manage to do that in your regular life, too, you're going to you know, it's good. It's good yeah. to do that. It's good to like not be telling your own story all Cut the, out time. the middle man. Yeah. Cut out always, that middle man. And always be kind of. Thinking like, how do I seem? What do I look like? What's going on? Just do it, you know. Experience your life. Yeah. yeah. And does that happen on stage with music too? I mean, is it something? Is there a difference between a good show and a bad show that involves that kind of energy? There, there, there. Uh, first of all, I don't know what a bad show is. All right, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I don't know I what mean a bad. To, I didn't mean to insult you or anything. <laughs> I mean, all right. Let's just say other people. Yeah, when other yeah, people yeah. have a bad show. Um, <laughs> no, there is. I have had bad shows. It's been a while, uh, but yeah. I have had bad shows. But um, there's a thing that it really uh, it made me think about this a lot. If I can't remember the next lyric in a song, most of the time, like eight, nine times out of ten, if I just open my mouth 
and start sending sound out of my mouth, it will yeah. be the correct lyrics. Uh-huh. They will come out. It's kind of like when you leave a grocery store and you don't remember where you parked your car. So you just stop thinking about it and start walking. Yeah, I'll just yeah. walk right to my car. Yeah. You know? There's yeah, something yeah. in my brain that's in the unconscious that registers these things. Uh-huh. And um, the way we do our shows, um, like I ran into uh, Phineas, O'Con- uh, uh, mm-hmm. Billy Eilish's brother Phineas, and we were yeah. talking about, you know, they have to play essentially the same show every night because um, uh, they're huge pop stars and people want to hear things a yeah, certain yeah. way. And they got all these triggers and all these lights and all this stuff. And it's all um, kind of programmed. I mean, listen to a, a lot, lot of the music it. programmed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but we improvise a bunch. We improvise a whole lot. Like I don't play the same guitar solos from night to night. That improv- improvisational thing. You know, that is all about flow state. You know, yeah. it's, it's all about just not judging what you're doing yeah. uh, and going with it. And it's kind of the old hippie thing, the old Grateful Dead thing. And, and we do it within the frame of three or four or five minute songs. Like, I'm not going to get up there and jam all night. But if I yeah, have yeah. eight, eight thank bars. You. Thank you for that, by the way. You're welcome. You're yeah. very welcome. Um, if I have eight bars to play a solo, I'm going to try to do something different every single night. And yeah. to do that, you got to stop judging yourself. Yeah. You have to immediately say, I- I'm not judging this. I'm just doing this. And yeah. that's, that's a real trick that I've learned songwriting wise. It's probably helped me more than anything over the last 20 years is how to not judge yourself until it's time to judge yourself. Yeah. The first time you're writing, don't do anything that slows you down. Don't look yeah. for connections. Don't try to write to the ending. Just make people, make characters, and follow them around. And then, and then later on, you can go back and judge it as hard as you want when you're editing it. Um, but I think that was the thing. It's like doing half of a songwriter's job when you're acting because you're doing the part where you're not judging yourself. You're just being and you're just creating constantly. And then you're expecting you know, Marty and Thelma Schoonmaker to edit it, which the editors, yeah, they, yeah. they do a pretty good job. They sure movies, do. You yeah, know? Yeah. So, but what, if you trust them uh, and, and the way they're going to make you look and sound and, and uh, appear, then, you know, there's no, you don't have to judge at all. You just be, you just do things over and over and over, do things. Yeah. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At participating McDonald's. I'm Phoebe Judge, host of the podcast This Is Love. Stories about love and all of the surprising forms it can take. Like a man who finds a baby on a subway platform. A woman who spends most of her time alone until a fox starts coming around. And in one of my favorite episodes, we meet a man who forgot his wife and had to get to know her and fall in love all over again. Listen to new episodes of This Is Love wherever you get your podcasts. Can't you tell my love's a grow? Well, another thing that's new that I would be remiss if I didn't talk about is your beautiful new teeth. Oh, thank you, Andy. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about that because I've read I've read so much shit online about your teeth, about really? people, people like talking about it. They are interested. I mean, because yeah. and and this is after the movie, right? You get it. Yes. It, it got fixed after the movie. Yeah, um, the movie do you think I had if my real fi- cowboy teeth. Do you think if they you got them fixed before you wouldn't have gotten to be in the movie? 
I might have had to wear prosthetic teeth that looked like my old teeth because that's Leo had on prosthetic teeth. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I might, they may have made me wear prosthetic teeth. And that was, yeah. I was thinking, I'll just make sure and wait until all this is over because, you know, people didn't have perfectly straight pearly whites in 1924 in they Oklahoma. Sure didn't. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now tell me, I mean, tell me because something about, you know, there's a there's a fantastic quote from Sigmund Freud that says you can't fall in love with a toothache, uh, which <laughs> yeah. which is you know and I mean it's meant to say how you know the minuscule can affect the sublime, mm-hmm. um, and I and I do know because I mean having had teeth issues or whatever throughout like is how why did it take you so long to get it I mean you know you probably got dental. Uh, <laughs> yeah, not that know, kind of dental. Not that no, kind of dental. No, no, no. I'm sag after. They ain't covering that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, honestly, this was the first time since I could afford it when I'd had a long enough period of time to recover from it. Oh, really? How long? And yeah. how long was that? It, it, well, I didn't know how long it was going to take. Um, uh, it took a couple weeks, really to get to the point to where I felt almost normal again, but I don't take painkillers. Yeah. Uh, so I still can't feel part of my chin. They had to do like a nerve block, but the the first surgery was eight hours. The second surgery was six. My shit was fucked. Yeah. They pulled like th- 12 or 13 teeth. My wisdom teeth were still in there. One of them was pushing on my trigeminal nerve and causing me severe neuralgia pain in my face. Um, and then I had tons of infection in my gums, like period, periodontal disease. And it was going up into my sinuses. Oh uh, yeah. And I didn't know this. Like I went to a dentist here in Nashville and, uh, and they said, well, you know, we can give you, uh, uh, Invisalign, you know, everything else looks pretty much okay. But that did not turn out to be the case. When I got yeah. out to California, the Dr. Sayans, he was like, oh yeah, this is going to take a lot of work. And sure enough, uh, they said it was their most challenging job of the year um wow it it, it was it you should was be difficult. proud of that uh, yeah i was actually yeah, yeah, i was yeah, like yeah. that's right i'm from how many people from <laughs> alabama come in here my friend because <laughs> i had some roll tied teeth yeah. um, <laughs> but uh but i'm i'm so glad it's so much easier to sing now is it like, yeah the higher range the falsetto and uh you know is that I, no, not really, because, yeah. you know, people say that, like, they say uh, Freddie Mercury uh, wouldn't get his teeth fixed because he thought it would affect his singing voice. I think uh, he it was a different reason. I think Freddie Mercury wouldn't get his teeth fixed because he didn't want to have to go in and give a bunch of medical information to people in the UK who might have made that public. Because, yeah, you know, there's a yeah. lot of things he didn't want people to know about himself. Right, right. Um, for me, man, it it. You know, and yeah, it might have it might have been a concern if I'd gone to somebody who did it in one or two days and did it for ten grand. You know, and it yeah, was like the yeah. cheapest, quickest. But I went to the best person I could possibly find, and they took their time, and uh, uh, so I wasn't worried about it. But I really didn't expect it to be so much easier. Like when I sang "Cover Me Up" on uh, Colbert, that was the first time I'd really sang that song since I'd had the teeth. Changed, fixed, replaced, and uh, it was so much easier. I think just because the infection in my sinuses, I was having to push through yeah. so much shit just to yeah. get the notes there, you know. Um, but I'm I'm very very happy with it. That's great. 
That's great. I mean, and uh, I mean, did, do the people around you notice? Like, is there a noticeable difference in your carriage? Yeah, because I think I not- smile more, so people think I'm nicer. <laughs> uh, which could be a good thing and a bad thing. What um, are you? Are you smiling because you got pretty teeth to show off, and you were self conscious, or are you smiling more because you're not in pain? You know. Yeah, it's a little bit of both. I think yeah. you know you don't necessarily realize how much pain you're in until somebody relieves it, and then you're yeah. like, oh shit, that hurt really bad. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm not supposed to just always have a headache because, like, when you know, when I was drinking back in the old days, like if I woke up now. Feeling like I will, you know, feeling like I felt every single morning 15 yeah. years ago, I would think I was fucking dying. Yeah. You know, I would call a man, I would think that I had cancer and that cancer had AIDS, and I would call a fucking <laughs> medevac <laughs> immediately, you know. <laughs> uh, but, you know, but then I was like, oh, yeah, this is just how I feel. I, yeah, I think yeah. you get, you don't necessarily get used to it, but you get accustomed to it. You yeah. Know? Yeah. Do you feel, I mean, because, I, you know, from when we talked, I guess it was in 2021, it was, you know, two and a half years ago, something like that. Um, I feel like there is a, a much, like you loom larger in the public consciousness now than you used to. Like, yeah, I it think, was a big year. Yeah, I think that, you know, before you were, you know, you were a very well-known Americana artist, but that's, you know, that's like saying you know, a very famous square dancer. Yeah. The most most popular Shih Tzu. Yeah. (laughs) And I mean, and, and I mean, how do you, I mean, do you feel like it was just kind of a natural thing? Was there something that was there like a publicist push or was it just kind of a natural evolution of things? And, and how does it make you feel? Well, I think it, all of it was owed to the to the fine people at the Oriole Company who are on this call silently right now. <laughs> um, no, the truth of it is, it was a natural thing. It was, you know, I made a record that was really good that that was the best that I could do, and yeah, I produced sure it was. myself. Yeah. And we tried really hard, and uh, and then you know, I was also in a movie that was a really fucking amazing thing and a huge deal. And that documentary came out on HBO. Um, you know, all these things sort of lined up. Uh, also the fact that cover me up, uh, the song has become sort of a part of the, the canon. you know, so oh, many people right. have covered it and stuff that yeah, that's become what, a big part of it. The guy, I can't remember his name, uh, Morgan Wallen, Morgan covered Wallen. it on yeah, his record. Yeah. And, 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 uh, you know, I think all these things just sort of happened at the same time, uh, the 10 year anniversary of Southeastern album. Um, yeah, everything just sort of converged in a natural yeah. way. Um, and, and I'm okay with it. You know, uh, it, it serves my purpose, which is just to keep doing my job and keep being able to travel comfortably and, you know, take care of my family and, and have good gear and, you know, take care of my band and my crew and all this. Um, it's not necessarily something that I had aimed for, uh, but I'm I, I'm okay with it and, and I enjoy it. Once I've you know once I've accepted that it's happening, then I'm going to try to figure out ways to have fun with it. Um, yeah, you know. So, I, but I'm 44 and I've been sober for almost 12 years. So, you know, if I can't handle that shit, nobody can. I mean, it's really <laughs> it's not that big a deal, you know. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, it's all very very positive and yeah. Um, 
And it also gives me the opportunity to do things that I couldn't do otherwise. Like, you know, now if, if I pick all of our openers and now when I bring an opening act out, I think the audience knows to show up early and, and pay attention. They treat them well. And sometimes that really helps people find an audience of their own, you know? Yeah. And then sometimes I just pick the people that I love the most, like Amy, man, yeah, she's doing Amy a couple man, of big yeah, shows yeah. for us in a couple of months. You know, that's just for me. That's like, she's got plenty of an audience, but I just want to hear her sing again. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's always nice. I mean, that's anybody that does it sort of like take, take success and fame and, and leverage and angle it into just being like spending more time with their friends is yeah. doing it wrong, you know, that, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, cause yeah. that's, that's the whole key. It's like, if you're, you know, if you, if it starts working like that means, okay, well now the party can really begin, you know? Yeah. And if you, if you do something other uh, else with it or start, you know, getting high on your own supply, as they say, mm -hmm. then you're sort of missing out on the, the point of it all. Oh yeah. Yeah. Luckily, you know, that kind of thing didn't really happen to me until I was, pretty much fully grown and I'd been in therapy for a long time. Yeah, so it's kind of yeah. easier for, you know, if I was 18 or 19, man, like, I don't know. I was at an event a couple of weeks ago, uh, uh, the GQ party, my, my best friend runs GQ magazine. He, he didn't, when we met, we've been friends for a long time, but you know, Olivia Rodrigo was there and, uh, you know, it's just, she's just like an adult. She's just fine. You know, she wasn't like drinking. She wasn't, she was just, being nice and hanging out and saying very normal things. And I was thinking, yeah. man, when I was that age, if I had been one tenth of as popular as her, you know, they would have been scraping me off the fucking ceiling of this place. <laughs> like I would have been a, dis a disaster. I would have burned this place to the ground, you know, yeah. with my own ego. Um, uh, yeah. So I'm always impressed when somebody that age handles it well. Cause it's yeah. like, you know, I'm I'm in my forties. What what are they what are they gonna do? You know, yeah. I, I still got to go get my fucking colonoscopy and you know, it's like <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to get too full of yourself when you right, got a camera right. going up your ass. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, unless you you know what's on the screen is magical. Of course, uh, if yeah, there's yeah. diamonds and rainbows, yeah, it's like I that. always knew it. Oh, I always knew that's what yes. was in my ass. There's yeah. magic in me. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jason, thank you so much for doing this again. And it was such a joy to talk to you. And this hour just flew by. For and, me too. Thank you. Sure. And I'm so happy that, you know, you're, that, that you are enjoying all this, all this stuff. And, and, and I do feel like it's not, you know, like if anybody hand, can handle it with grace and aplomb, it's you. And mm -hmm. and so, you know, I, I look forward to just everybody getting to know who you are and, and finding out the stuff that you really do, the music, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you, Andy. And sure, I'm honored sure. to be honored to be your first uh, repeat customer. That's well, a that's a big deal. Thank you. Thank you. I, I, uh, it, 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 it was good. I was a little worried cause I felt, cause like I say, when I listened to the first one, I was like, I was a pretty good one. It was we a good covered one. covered a lot of ground. Yeah, we, we did. did. And I, and I, so I was like, oh shit, what am I going to talk about? But you know, we both have the gift of gab. Well, you can uh, talk that we yeah, can do. Yeah. Uh, love to everybody on your side of the world. And, Same to you. And uh, thank you. And thank you all for listening. And, uh, I'll be back next week. The Three Questions with Andy Richter is a Team Coco production. It is produced by Sean Doherty and engineered by Rich Garcia. Additional engineering support by Eduardo Perez and Joanna Samuel. 
Executive produced by Nick Liao, Adam Sachs, and Jeff Ross. Talent booking by Paula Davis, Gina Batista, with assistance from Maddie Ogden. Research by Alyssa Grawl. Don't forget to rate and review and subscribe to The Three Questions with Andy Richter wherever you get your podcasts. And do you have a favorite question you always like to ask people? Let us know in the review section. Can't you tell my love's growing? Can't you feel it ain't showing? Oh, you must be a knowing. I've got a big, big love. This has been a Team Coco production. Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, but the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.